0: Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Centre Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. Well, we do welcome you to Centre Street, those of you who are joining us online, and also those of you here at Central Campus. And um, those of you who are meeting together at one of our other campuses in Tree, Bridgeland, South Calgary and in northwest Calgary at Crowfoot. Uh, We're making our way through the book of Colossians together, and today we come to Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. And so I'm going to ask you to stand with me and join me in reading uh, this passage together. Since then you have been raised with Christ... and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator let us pray our heavenly father we again thank you for your word its instruction for life the wisdom that it offers us and lord I pray that uh, you would um, just instruct us today um, in terms of your intended meaning in the words that we just read pray also lord that Um, you would soften our hearts, Uh, you would remove distractions, Uh, allow us to focus, and Lord, uh, that you would give us the courage to respond in whatever way you'd have us to before we pray it all in Jesus' precious name. Amen. may be seated. When I was a young teen... Uh, I would often spend um, a number of my Saturdays and my summer months on our family farm, helping out wherever I was needed. One particular summer, I was helping harvest our crops and had the joy of using our combine, which along with most of our other farm machinery, uh, was on life support. It worked, out, worked for about an hour, and then it coughed, spit, and shut down. It was late August, and according to the weather forecast, we had about five days to uh, get the crop in before we would hit a week of heavy rainfall, and we just knew that if we didn't get the crop in before then, we probably would never get it in. And one of our neighbors happened to drive by when our combine broke down and spent the better part of 45 minutes helping us to get it going again, and I hopped... um, on that machine and uh, as expected after making another lap, uh, it coughed, spit, and shut down again. And as I was pulling shafts of wheat out of the back end of this wonderful machine, I, um, I said, Dad, at this rate, uh, it's going to take a miracle for us to get this crop in before the rain begins. Well, two days later, the miracle happened. Turns out that the same helpful neighbor showed up again. Only this time, he showed up with his almost new, state-of-the-art, self-propelled combine. He told us he had just finished his crops the night before and came to help us get our crop in free of charge. Well, with his help, we did get that crop in in record time over the next couple of days. We thanked him profusely, and as we watched him drive away, I turned to my dad and I asked, Do you think he's a Christian? And he said, he sure is. He's one of the finest Christian men that I know. You see, even though I didn't know this man, the reason I wondered if he was a Christian is because his spirit, his generosity, his servant heart reflected the heart and the life of Jesus that I read about in the scriptures. And even as a young teen, I believed that if you were a true follower of Jesus Christ, it would show up in the way that you lived your life. Well, this is essentially what Paul wrote to the believers in Colossae. After articulating in the first couple of chapters who Jesus is and what he did for us through his death and resurrection, in the final two chapters, Paul essentially teaches that when we put our trust in Jesus, the old person we were dies and is buried with him. He invades our lives and becomes one with us. He, and we, as a result, become spiritually alive in him. And our heart is dramatically changed. So much so that we come to the place where our attitudes and our values our very focus in life. And our behaviors are significantly different from our self-centered, me-absorbed culture. In verse 5, Paul writes this, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Now, I've had people say to me, Pastor Henry, I don't understand what Paul's saying here. I mean, in verse 3, Paul writes, for you died. Man, if I died to sin, someone just needs to inform my hormones. Because I'm still struggling with sin big time. And if I died to sin, I don't understand why Paul writes in verse 5, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. I mean, how can I put to death something that has already died? Good questions. Maybe you found yourself asking that question as you read this passage in preparation for our time together. Well, to answer that, I'm going to invite you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and look at verse 18. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Dan Stone points out that this verse contains two truths one truth talks about things that are seen and temporary and the other truth talks about things that are unseen and eternal and he says, keep your eyes focused on that which is unseen and eternal in the same way that here in chapter 3 when he says, Paul says in verse 1, since then you have been raised with Christ set your hearts on things above on the eternal things Not on the temporary earthly things. It could be pictured like this. You see it on the screen in front of you. Now, in verse 18, it indicates that the realm above the line is eternal and unseen. We call it the spiritually or the heavenly realm. Like God, it is changeless, it's timeless. It is the realm of completeness, of wholeness and perfection. Where things are finished and settled. It's the realm of our spirit which is really at the core of who we are in God's eyes. Now on the other hand, the realm below the line is visible and temporary. We call it the natural realm or the earthly realm, it's the realm in which we live. It's the realm of creation having a beginning and an end. It is the realm in which we see both good and evil. It is the realm where we often say I want to grow in Christ but I'm not there yet. It's the realm of sanctification. Now again to be clear both realms are vitally important to God in part because he created them both. We are simply acknowledging what Paul says are these two realms. And that from God's perspective, the spiritual or the eternal realm is greater than the other. That is where God wants us focused. Now the problem is sometimes we get confused about which realm the Scriptures are speaking to or Scriptures are speaking about. Sometimes we read a passage, we assume it's referring to the temporary or the earthly realm. When in fact, it's actually speaking to the eternal realm. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14, and just use that as an example. This is what it says For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Now, at first glance, this verse is confusing. Because it talks about us being made perfect forever, but then it goes on to say we are being made holy or perfect. So we're perfect forever, but we're being made perfect or holy. And yet, this verse is actually talking about the eternal and the earthly realm, both realms. Through Christ's sacrifice on the cross, God has already perfected those of us who are in Christ. And you say, well, how is that? Well, when we put our trust in Jesus Christ as Lord, the Bible says that God takes the sin that's on our account, that we're liable for, and he puts it on Christ's account. And he takes the perfect righteousness of Jesus and he puts that on our account. I mean, it's a marvelous, grace-filled exchange. Take it any time. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, God made him, referring to Jesus, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. He became sin for us. He paid the price. In exchange, He gave us His perfect righteousness. Righteousness, or a right standing of total acceptability to God, is a gift. You don't work for it, you don't earn it, you don't deserve it. Like any gift all you can do is either accept it or reject it. And once you do accept it, it's yours. At that point in the spiritual realm you are in Christ. You are in Him and He is in you. You are one with Him. Christ died was buried, and rose again to pay for our sins and to make a way for us to be made spiritually alive again and have a relationship with him and our Heavenly Father. And so when we put our trust in his finished work and we surrender our lives to him as Lord, he invades our lives and we are united with him. And you see, what is true of Jesus becomes true of us. In the spiritual realm, we died with Christ. We were buried with Christ. And praise God, we were raised with Christ, amen? Spiritually alive and a totally new person. And again, all of that happened in the spiritual realm and was accomplished for us by Christ. Now, let me go back to Hebrews 10, 14. It says, because of one sacrifice, Christ has made perfect forever. In other words, in the spiritual realm, God sees us perfect forever. As forgiven, he sees us as forgiven, as righteous, and as holy Not because we're living perfectly in the earthly realm. Anybody want to argue about that? No, not because we're living perfectly in this life, in this realm, but because we are in Christ and He is perfect. Amen? You see, and that is our standing before God in the eternal realm. Now let me go back to Hebrews 10, 14 again. For by one sacrifice, his death on the cross, he has made perfect forever those, who's those? that be us. Those who are being made holy. Because we are in Christ, this verse says in the spiritual realm, God sees us as perfect and holy. However, in the earthly realm, we're still being made holy. We're still growing in the love and the grace of Jesus Christ. Which explains why Paul calls us to put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. You see, even though in the earthly realm we died with Christ and have been raised with Christ and are a new creation, a new person in Jesus Christ, our earthly nature remains. In other words, our soul, our body, which has been functioning for years under the control of sin and selfishness, our soul and our bodies are still going on in the same old way. We still have this earthly nature that fights against the new person that we are in Christ. Someone didn't hit the delete button. You know, kind of wipe it out. Now to help you to understand this, this, this battle that goes on, um, a few years ago I switched from a computer made by one company to a computer made by another company, the names of which will go unmentioned. (laughs) Now, even though companies that make computers use the same basic alphabetical keyboards, they feel great liberty to move other key functions around, (laughs) like the delete button or the backspace button and the page up and down keys and, you know, just wherever they want. So when I made this switch from one computer to the other, I found it incredibly frustrating getting used to my new computer because instinctively I hit certain keys that didn't correspond to what I was used to hitting. And I had to actually slow down and re-educate myself to the new location of some of those keys. Well, I'm a slow ler- learner, but I stuck with it. And slowly, I put to death. <laughs> Not the keyboard. <laughs> there were moments. But no, I put to death the old ways of thinking. The old ways of doing things. And over time, my thinking was transformed, changed. And my frustration level diminished. And today I can say, it's gone. (laughs) Well, you see, so it is in the spiritual realm. It's a struggle to re-educate, as it were, our earthly nature, our soul, our body. And we experience many failures as a result. But if we persist and we believe to the core of our being that sin destroys, it's destructive. And consequently, we persist and put to death these sins in our lives. And we allow the Holy Spirit to bring it under control of the new life that we have in Christ we will increasingly experience the victorious life that Jesus wants us to experience and to live. And it's with all that in mind that we come to verse 5, where Paul writes, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, and then he gives us a number of examples. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. He says, put to death sexual immorality. Now, there's quite a bit of controversy around what sexual immorality is or what this phrase means. And so if we want to know what God's original blueprint for sexual morality is, We need to go right back to the beginning. We need to go to the creation account before sin and evil entered the world and before the Ten Commandments and and the law were given. So turn to Genesis chapter 2 and go down to verse 24. And while you're doing that, I'll just tell you quickly that just before this passage, we read about the creation of Eve, making Adam a very happy man. And we read this. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Now there are several things I want to point out from this passage. First of all, becoming one flesh refers to sexual intimacy. Secondly, this is God's statement on the moral context for sexual intimacy. It is to be between a man and a woman who are united in marriage. Notice it says, a man will leave his father and mother and be united with whom? Um, Does it say the person he is dating? Does it say his fiance? No, it says his wife. Now Jesus reinforced this in Matthew 19, verse 4. When he said, haven't you read that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Thirdly, notice that this statement is a positive statement and not a negative statement on sexuality. God is no killjoy. You know, he invented sex. Yay, God. (laughs) It's not dirty. Sex is not a disgusting thing the way some people have believed and perhaps still do. But like everything in life, we must not abuse it. All of God's gifts have limitations on them, placed upon them by God. For example, God's given us the gift of water. You can't live without water, but too much of it and you'll drown. God has given us the gift of fire. But fire can either warm you or it can burn you. It's how you handle it. And God says, I've given you this drive called sex. Properly controlled and expressed in marriage between a man and a woman. It's beautiful. It's fantastic. But outside of marriage, it is detrimental to your health as a human being. Emotionally, spiritually, and in some cases, even physically. So if this statement here in the creation account... Is God's moral standard for sex, we can conclude that any sexual relations outside of this context is what God is referring to when He uses the words sexually immoral. And God says and asks, Am I truly? your Lord and Master? Have you genuinely surrendered your life to me in all things? Do you trust me in this? Do you believe I have your best interest at heart in all things, including your sexuality? Or are you going to reject God? and not believe Him, or trust Him in this. He says, if you trust me, if I am your Lord and Master, then put to death sexual immorality. Secondly, put to death impurity. Now this is referring to taking something that is pure and good and perverting it. A good example of this, of course, is pornography. Pornography dishonors and dehumanizes the women and the men who are used to produce this filth. Statistics show that upwards of 70% of Christian men struggle with porn. And over 20% of women do as well. Now, many people give themselves permission to dabble into porn, believing that they're not hurting anyone. Well, research is showing that viewing porn is addictive. It hardwires your brain a certain way. And breaking that particular habit, that addictive behavior, that addictive habit, is harder than getting off heroin. It shows that viewing pornography has a corrosive dehumanizing effect on the way that men view women and women view men, often causing them to see people as sexual objects rather than people made in the image of God. Research is also showing that viewing pornography leaves people dissatisfied with their spouse and their marriage and corrodes their ability to be close and intimate with their spouse. This is no small matter, friends. And if you're struggling with this, or some other form of impurity, I plead with you to see it for what it is, to understand the warning that God is giving to you out of love for you. Stop believing the lies Stop making excuses and get the help that you need. Here at the church, get engaged with our freedom ministries. or Talk to one of our pastors and we'll try to direct you in a way that you can get help. You know, centuries ago, Job said, I made a covenant with my eyes that... I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. And what Paul writes... When Paul writes here, put to death impurity, he's calling us to make that kind of commitment. That we will not look lustfully at anyone else. Putting to death impurity means I'm prepared to get rid of books and magazines and videos, whatever it it is that moves me toward impure thoughts. Putting to death impurity means I'm prepared to give my wife or my parents or my best friend Permission to monitor what sites I am surfing and visiting on the internet. Now again, please understand, I'm not endorsing any kind of legalism here. But folks, how many lives, I ask you, how many lives, how many marriages, how many relationships have to go up in smoke before we realize the seriousness of God's warning here and acknowledge the horrendous carnage that's created by all of this. Despite a world around us that makes us want to believe, it's no big deal. When are we going to start believing God and rejecting the lies of the culture around us and the deception of the culture around us? When are we going to believe God that he truly loves us has our best interests at heart when he calls us to put sexual immorality and purity to death. Now, by the way, impurity isn't limited just to sexuality. Again, impurity is when you take something pure and you make it impure. And that can apply to the food that we consume. Yes, Food. God intended food to sustain our bodies, to keep them healthy. And yet some people abuse God's intended use for food. Instead of leaning into God for their security, they use food, and often impure food referred to as junk food. (laughs) But they lean into impure food as a drug. The same can be said of money. Again, it's not wrong to have money. Money's morally neutral. The Bible says it's the love of money that's really at the root of all evil because we make it a God. God's the one who gave us all that we have. He's the owner of it all. He wants us to use it, to enjoy it. But he also intended for us to not hoard it, but to be generous with it. And when our income goes up and we just keep upgrading our standard of living rather than our standard of giving, we're taking a pure gift that God has given to us and we're abusing it. We're walking in impurity in the way we're using this gift of money that God has given to us. Paul says, put to death impurity. And then he says, put to death lust. And again, you know, so many of these we, we think sexually right away. But there's just an attitude here that's linked to greed. Lust is doing whatever you want to do. With no thought about whether God would approve or what damage your actions may have on other people you simply want what you want with regard to with with no regard to anyone else and paul is saying this tendency which is really in all of us in small ways and sometimes pretty significant ways he's saying this has to be put to death he says put to death evil desires And if you look at verse 8, Paul gives us an additional list of sins that really flow from the evil desires of the heart. He writes, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. And we often kind of see these as social sins. You know, everyone does it. It's very common. And so we just kind of downplay it. But God takes this very serious. Takes this as serious as the first list that we've just looked at. Because you see, all of these ones in verse 8, they stem from selfish desires within us. Because a person might be blocking a goal or something that we want. And so we get angry. We might even have a fit of rage because someone's messing up our perfect plan for our lives. Or we may slander or gossip negatively about a person that we are envious of or someone that we're just angry with. Or sometimes we have malice toward a person who we perceive to be blocking one of our goals. Do you know what malice is? Malice is an attitude of ill will toward another person. When, when, when we have malice toward a person, we're sad, sometimes to the point of depression, when they are successful or when they are applauded by other people. And we rejoice, outright celebrate when they fall morally or when they fail or they face misfortune or hardship. Paul says, put these evil desires to death. And then he says, put to death greed, which is idolatry. Greed is a sin, much like lust, of always wanting more, whether it is more things or more pleasures. The greedy person is never satisfied or content with what they have, but are often envious of what other people have. Paul says, greed is idolatry because greed puts things, or what it is we want, in the place of God. Whatever I put my trust in, that is what I worship." Ken Hughes, Kent Hughes. He says, "If people were really honest, including many Christians, they would realize that their materialism is their true religion. Because their trust, their security, and their confidence is more in their money and their possessions and in their positions than it is in God. And he warns us that the greed of things can be more dangerous, actually, than sensual sins. Because materialism and greed has so many respectable forms. It can be covered over so easily, made to look actually quite altruistic. As someone once said, if a man is drunk with wine, we kick him out of the church. On the other hand, if he's drunk with money, we make him a deacon. (laughs) That is how subtle... Materialism can be in our lives and this is why Paul seems to warn against greed over and over again because when we commit adultery we kind of know it right it's not like oh gee you know I didn't think about that that was actually adultery but you see greed is subtle because it can creep up on us take our eyes off Jesus and entice us into worshiping a counterfeit idol Paul writes, put to death greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You know, we don't like to think about the wrath of God or even talk about it. But the Bible speaks often of God's holiness and God's justice and punishing unrighteousness. We like to think that justice somehow can be brought about without punishment. But that's just actually not true. For justice to be served, punishment has to be delivered. If your child has been abused or molested by someone, then you know that justice must involve punishment. If a man kidnaps a young woman in Thailand or some other place in the world and forces her to work as a prostitute, we know that justice must involve punishment. Now, yes, as our Redeemer, Christ has absorbed God's wrath on our behalf. But make no mistake, like any loving father, if we stubbornly go our own way, if we refuse to deal with habitual sin in our lives, he will discipline us out of love for us. Or he will leave us alone for a time and let us reap what we sow. So that one day, hopefully, we will see the despair and the destruction that comes with our sin. And we will return to Him. But what we must not miss, friends, when it comes to this subject of God's wrath, is God's heart in all of this. And why God pleads with us To put sin to death in our lives. His wrath. His discipline. Is never a vengeful kind of punishment. It flows from a heart of love. You see. We've got to understand that it breaks the heart of God. Our sin breaks his heart. Because he knows what sin does to us. I mean think about it. If your child takes a knife. And insists on sticking it into an electric socket, even after you have warned him several times, wouldn't there be something inside of you, a righteous wrath, that would rise up out of concern for your child's life? If someone were to repeatedly hurt your son or daughter, wouldn't a righteous wrath be unleashed toward them? Now look at it from God's perspective. I think we miss this sometimes. Every moment, every moment of every day, he sees the carnage that sin causes in the lives of his children. Every moment of every day. All over the planet. I mean, just yesterday afternoon as I sat at my desk preparing this message and as I was thinking about this and trying to understand his perspective in all of this and then I got thinking about some people that I know, people that I've known, that I've counseled and worked with I began to think about the loss and the regret and the relational upheaval and carnage that they've experienced because they didn't put sin to death, because they dabbled with it. They just didn't take it seriously. And as I thought about all the hurt and the loss and the pain, I I just wept. And I wept. God is not our enemy. He's not up there with a big stick just looking for us to step out of line so he can whack us. As if that's the only thing that gives him any kind of thrill. It is love that motivates him for us. And when he sees the carnage that's created by our sin, he is grieved. He weeps as we all should, he just weeps over the loss and the hardship that comes our way because of our sin, and he pleads with us, as he does here in Colossians, to put sin to death in our lives, because he wants it to go well with us and our children forever. Read Deuteronomy 6. Now, next time we'll talk more specifically about how to put sin to death in our lives. I want to wrap up by just going back to one statement in verse 5 that Paul makes. Essentially, that list, he gives that long list. At the very end of all, all of it, he says, essentially, all these sins is really idolatry. You see, whether we realize it or not, as we live our lives, We either worship God or we worship ourselves. If Christ is truly our Lord and our King, then we will want to do what He wants. On the other hand, when we are our own Lord, then we're going to want to do what we want to do. And you see, when you don't care what God says or what pleases the Lord and and you just do what it is you want to do, you have chosen yourself over God. And that, my friends, is idolatry. It's the source of all sin. I'm doing it my way rather than God's way and that is the issue that all of us have to settle in our lives who will be the Lord of my life who will I believe with respect to what success is to what brings satisfaction in life and a whole host of other things like what matters in life Who will I believe? Who will I trust, not only with my eternity, but my life here on earth? Do I want what God wants for my life? Or do I want what I want? We're going to close this service by taking the Lord's Supper together. You know, one of the reasons that God wants us to share the Lord's Supper is so that we might be reminded of the very truths that we just looked at in his word together today. In Colossians 1.13, Paul reminds us of this. He says, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. Wow. And brought us into the kingdom of of His Son, the Son that He loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Because of Christ's amazing love for us, demonstrated by His sacrificial death on the cross, we are forgiven, we're redeemed we're made spiritually alive we we stand holy, complete and righteous before God without condemnation we are loved and accepted without reservation that is the inheritance that is ours in Christ this is what Jesus did for us Now, why did he do that for us? Why did he sacrifice his life for us? Well, he did it for a number of reasons, but he didn't do it just so that we would stop sinning, as important as that is. See, the goal of the Christian life, we have to understand, is not to stop sinning. Paul says it's an important goal because your heavenly Father wants it to go well with you in this life. It's an important goal, but it's not the ultimate goal. No, the ultimate goal, and this is what I want us to take away and what I want us to approach the Lord's table with, the ultimate goal of the Christian life is that we would be a friend of Jesus. He died, he was buried, he rose again so that we might come alive and be his friend. That we might know him intimately even as he knows us. John 17, just before he was arrested and crucified, Jesus was praying to his father and he said, Father, may they know you and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. May they know you. His passionate desire is that we would know with him. That we would walk with him daily. The last thing he said to his disciples before he sent it to be with his father was, I am with you always to the very end of the age. I'm with you. I want to walk with you. I want to do life with you. I want to direct your steps. I want to empower you. He is with us, and he wants to do all these things with us and for us, but here's the thing, it is not going to happen unless we're all in with him, unless we believe him and the truth of his word, unless we totally trust him with our lives and our future, unless our friendship with him is our ultimate priority. So I ask you the question again, have you truly been raised with Christ? Have you embraced him as your Lord and your master? If you have, then approach the table with thanksgiving for all that he did for you and the relationship that you share with him. If you haven't or you're not sure, I want to challenge you to pray a prayer of surrender right now in a moment. And if you just can't do that right now, then let the elements pass you by until you can pray a prayer of total surrender from your heart. Until you can say, I'm all in, Jesus. You're my Lord. You're my King. My prayer for you is is that you will surrender all to Jesus now. Because I have found you will never have a closer, more faithful friend than Jesus. And because I am convinced to the core of my being that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And that he is Lord. And every knee will bow. Every tongue one day will confess that He, Jesus, is Lord. Would you just bow your heads? Let's just ask those two questions we become accustomed to. Lord, what are you saying to me? Lord, what is it you want me to do about it? Chapter 22, where we read, When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Our Heavenly Father, we just praise you today because you are the all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere present one, the God of all creation. We thank you, Lord, for your majesty, your faithfulness, your mercy and grace for saving us, Lord, from our sins and loving us despite our unfaithfulness, our failures and our sin Lord we long to be in close relationship with you and so we ask God that you would forgive us for those times we've gone our way rather than your way those times that we've not involved you in our day the times we've just taken you and your grace for granted cleanse us Lord of sin Renew us by your Holy Spirit that we may perfectly love you and magnify your holy name. Bless and sanctify with your word and spirit these gifts of bread and the fruit of the vine that we receiving them, O God, may be partakers of the divine nature through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who taught us when we pray to say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation. Lord, deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you may the lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you the lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace in the name of god the father the son and the holy spirit amen thanks for listening we hope this message has impacted you we'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter.